Welcome to the Heart of the Father podcast. We're glad you're here and able to listen in. We're praying the Lord will speak to your heart through this message and that you be transformed more and more into the image of Christ. Okay, if you want to go ahead and open up your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 28. So if you are new, we're right in the middle of a five-week series called Israel, End Times, and the Second Coming. And Barry preached the first two weeks focusing on end times, what it looks like, how to be ready, what should be our mentality. <clears throat> I thought he did a phenomenal job spearheading us in this, jumping it out, jumping out into this topic for us. And so today we're going to make the shift and we're going to be talking about Israel. Before I do that, I want to put out there some resources that I think would be good for you to, to be connected with when it comes to Israel and the news and all of those things. We all, as we all know, the news can be flip a coin. You know, who knows what you're getting these days. But I wanted to put these out there to you guys so you can write them down or, or uh, whatever, just so that you can have them in your, in your world a little bit. But Newsmax is a great resource. Intercessors for America, another great resource. Um, Dr. Michael Brown is another great resource. His is askdrbrown.org. A guy named Scott Volk, uh, he leads a ministry called Together for Israel, is another great resource. And then uh, one that I I personally like is FIA, Frontier Alliance International. It's a ministry based in uh, the Middle East. But those are some good resources that I would say that are trusted it doesn't mean that we agree on every little dot and tittle, but I would say they're, they're trusted, that they would be reliable for the most part. And then also, so since we're talking about Israel, um, some of the religious leaders in Israel have called for a uh, national day of prayer for Israel tomorrow. Tomorrow marks the 30th day of being engaged in war. And so they're calling for a national day of prayer. And so the prayer meeting we have on Monday nights, we're going to be praying for Israel. Okay, so the doors open at six o'clock here. There's going to be a worship set, and then we'll shift into prayer at seven o'clock. But we're going to uh, be praying for Israel tomorrow. Sound good? Okay, so there's a couple of questions that I want to try to answer by the end of today's message. Um, Looks like we got plenty of time, so this is good. We're going to read a lot of scripture today. Just want to put it out there. A lot of scripture. I think I gave our Richard two sticky notes full of scripture we're going to read today. So hopefully you brought your Bible. If not, you can just take these notes down. But um, we're going to address four questions. Number one, what is the importance of Israel and the Jewish people? What is replacement theology, and should we believe it? What is anti-Semitism, and should we participate in it? And four, how do we interpret what's happening now in Israel? Now, I want to do my best to get to all of these today, but I will come back for round two next Sunday. So we'll see where we go and, and what we get through. But as I've been preparing for this message, I have felt the fear of the Lord in a, in a new way. 
this past week has been difficult for me in a good way, just seeking the Lord and really looking at the Word of God. I know there's a lot of feelings and a lot of thoughts, but we need to be rooted and grounded in the Word of God. And hopefully today we're going to maybe take off some of our Americanized lens that we see everything through. And, and maybe we're going to start seeing things in a different perspective today. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time together. Lord, I feel sober. I sense your, the fear of the Lord. And God, I pray that you would speak through me. I pray that your word would be magnified in this place, that you would plant the seed of your word in our hearts. Pray for the spirit of wisdom and revelation to rest upon us. Father, would you grant us understanding? God, give us understanding, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So in Genesis 12, God establishes a covenant with a man named Abraham, of which I'm assuming most of us know, right? And he makes a covenant with him. And as one pastor put it, I liked how he did, he established a covenant concerning three things, land, lineage, and the Lord. He said, Abraham, I'm giving you a land, right? Which is today, modern day Israel. He says, I'm giving you, I'm going to make you a great nation, meaning you're going to have a lineage that's going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And then he says, through your lineage is coming the Lord, the Messiah. That's Genesis 12. And then um, that's God's covenant promise to him and to his descendants. And so he has a son, Isaac, and then Jacob, and so on. And we're going to jump into Deuteronomy 28. And in Deuteronomy 28, God is going to reaffirm this covenant through Moses, who's leading the people of God. And in chapter 27, verse 1, I'll read it for you, but it says, Moses and the elders of Israel commanded the people. Okay, so this is not in America. This isn't somewhere in Europe. This is in Israel. He's talking to the people of Israel. And in verse 28, sorry, chapter 28, Here's God speaks into this promise. He says, now, if you faithfully obey the Lord your God and carefully and are careful to follow his commandments, I'm giving you today, the Lord your God will put you far above all the nations of the earth. All these blessings will come and overtake you because you obey the Lord your God. You will be blessed in the city and blessed in the country. Your descendants will be blessed. Your lands produce and the offspring of your livestock, including the young of your herds and the newborn of your flocks. Your basket and kneading bowl will be blessed. You will be blessed when you come in and blessed when you go out. Verse 7, the Lord will cause the enemies who rise up against you to be defeated before you. They will march out against you from one direction, but flee from you in seven directions. The Lord will grant you a blessing on your storehouses and on everything you do. He will bless you in the land the Lord your God is giving you. The Lord will establish you as his holy people, as he swore to you, if you obey the commands of the Lord your God and walk in his ways." 
Then all the peoples of the earth will see that you are called by Yahweh's name and they will stand in awe of you. So Israel is supposed to shine with the glory of the Lord and bear his name. Verse 11, the Lord will make you prosper abundantly with children, the offspring of your livestock and your land's produce and the land the Lord swore to your fathers to give you, his father Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The Lord will open for you his abundant storehouse, the sky, to give your land rain in its season and to bless all the work of your hands. You will lend to many nations, but you will not borrow. The Lord will make you the head and not the tail. You will only move upward and never downward if you listen to the Lord your God's commandments I am giving you today and are careful to follow them. Do not turn aside to the right hand or to the left from all the things that I am commanding you today. And do not go after other gods to worship them. Okay, this is God saying, Israel, you are my people. I will bless you. I will prosper you. I will protect you. I will deliver you. If you obey me, I will do those things. I'll be faithful. God is like a faithful husband to Israel. Those are the blessings, right? Verse 15, there's this word, but... But if you do not obey the Lord your God by carefully following all his commands and statutes I'm giving you today, all these curses will come and overtake you. You will be cursed in the city and cursed in the country. Your basket and kneading bowl will be cursed. Your descendants will be cursed. Your land's produce, the young of your herds, the newborn of your flocks, you will be cursed when you come in and cursed when you go out. Verse 20, the Lord will send against you curses, confusion, and rebuke in everything you do until you are destroyed and quickly perish because of the wickedness of your actions in abandoning me. And he continues on to describe what will happen if they disobey him. Jump down to verse 62. Though you were as numerous as the stars of the sky, you will be left with only a few people because you did not obey the Lord your God. Just as the Lord was glad to cause you to prosper and to multiply you, so he will also be glad to cause you to perish and to destroy you. You will be deported from the land you are entering to possess. Then the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other. And there you will worship other gods of wood and stone, whether which neither you nor your fathers have known. Notice in that verse, he talked about scattering them among the nations. If you look at the history of Israel, the Lord did that. By the Assyrians, the Babylonians. Verse 65, you will find no peace among those nations, and there will be no resting place for the sole of your foot. There the Lord will give you a trembling heart, failing eyes, and a despondent spirit. Your life will hang in doubt before you. You will be in dread night and day, never certain of survival. Chapter 29, go to verse 24. If they continue to disobey the Lord, chapter 29, verse 24, all the nations will ask, why has the Lord done this to this land? Why this great outburst of anger? Then the people will answer, 
the people of the world will answer, it is because they abandoned the covenant of Yahweh, the God of their fathers, which he had made with them. When he brought them out of the land of Egypt, they began to worship other gods, bowing down to gods they had not known, gods that the Lord had not permitted them to worship. Therefore, the Lord's anger burned against this land, and he brought every curse written in this book on it. The Lord uprooted them from their land in his anger, rage, and great wrath, and threw them into another land where they are today. So God clearly lays out, if you obey me, I will bless you, protect you, provide for you, all of those things. If you disobey me, it will be extremely difficult for you. I will discipline you. I will chastise you. I'll scatter you. I'll curse you. I'll do all of these things to you. Is that clear? In verse 18, or sorry, in verse 10, a couple verses above, God Speaks a final word here. All of you are standing today before the Lord your God, your leaders, tribes, elders, officials, all the men of Israel, your children, your wives, the foreigners in your camps who cut your wood and draw your water, so that you may enter into the covenant of the Lord your God, which he is making with you today, so that you may enter into his oath, and so that he may establish you today as his people, and he may be your God as he promised you and as he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob." I am making this covenant and this oath not only with you, but also with those who are standing here with us today in the presence of the Lord our God and with those who are not here today. So God says, I'm choosing you. And the reason he chose them in Deuteronomy 7, he says, I chose you not because there's something really special and unique about you. He's like, you're actually a really small people. You don't have that many people. You're really, you're you're the smallest among other nations, but I'm choosing you because I love you. And I'm choosing you because I made a covenant with your fathers, which is somewhat of a reflection of why God chose us. He chose Israel because he loved them. There was nothing special about them. For example, if you have children and we asked you like, why do you love your kids so much? They just cause you problems all the time, right? You got to clean up after them. They don't listen. They run Why do you love your kids? Because you love them. You would probably say, because they're mine. And so why did God choose Israel? There's nothing super amazing about them. It's not like they're really smart and we're all stupid. And No, he chose them because he said, I love you and you're mine. But we're going to look at um, several more passages today that are going to help describe God's relationship with Israel. Go ahead and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 8. God enters into this marriage, you can call it a marital covenant with Israel. And we're going to see this relationship is bipolar. It is up and down, up and down. Israel loves the Lord their God, then they forsake the Lord their God. They love him, then they forsake him. And we're going to see as well God's faithfulness to them. So in 1 Samuel chapter 8, where you're turning to, just before that, in chapter 7, uh, chapter 6 and 7, the Philistines come up against the uh, Israelites, and they end up slaughtering 34,000 Israelites, and they capture the Ark of the Covenant. Well, the Ark of the Covenant begins to terrorize the Philistines. 
So they say, all right, let's give it back to the, to the Jews. Let's give it back to them. So they get the ark back, and Samuel reveals to them, hey, guys, you guys know why this is all happening. You're worshiping idols in the, in the house of God. And he says, we need to repent, turn from the Lord, and he will come through for us. So in chapter 7, what, what's God do? He thunders as, as the Philistines are trying to attack Israel and sends them in confusion. And Israel ends up defeating them and they, they scurry away. So God, once again, even though Israel was not faithful to Yahweh, God came through. Because they repented. He returned to them. And then chapter 8, Israel does something for the first time they had not done in all of their history. And this is one of the most offensive things to Yahweh. So in chapter 8, verse 4, Samuel's the prophet. He's speaking forth the words of God to his people. But Samuel's getting a little bit older. And it says, so all the elders of Israel gathered together and went to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, look, you are old. Your sons don't follow your example. Therefore, appoint us a king to judge us the same as all the other nations have. Well, wait, didn't God say, Israel, you're too, you are to stand out among the nations, not be like them. <clears throat> verse, uh, verse 6, when they said, give us a king to judge us, Samuel considered their demand sinful. So he prayed to the Lord. But the Lord said to him, listen to this people and everything they say to you, they have not rejected you. They have rejected me as their king. They are doing the same thing to you that they have done to me since the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, abandoning me and worshiping other gods. And then verse 19, the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we must have a king over us. Then we'll be like all the other nations. Our king will judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. If that's not a dagger into the heart of God who said, I will be your king. I will be your leader. I'll fight for you. Just simply obey me. And yet Israel rejects Yahweh. Give us a king. So what's God do? Gives them what they want. Saul became their first king. We all know that doesn't go very well. Write down in your notes to read Psalm 78. We're not going to read that today, but that's another psalm that will speak into this relationship God has with Israel. And I want you to go with me to Jeremiah chapter 2. <clears throat> Stay with me, we're going somewhere. Jeremiah chapter 2. The people of God are going to eventually be sent into Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar is going to take them captive. But before they're there, Jeremiah prophesies. Verse 1, the word of the Lord came to me. Go and announce directly to Jerusalem that this is what the Lord says. I remember the loyalty of your youth, your love as a bride. How you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. 
Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. And this next verse speaks about other nations who tried to attack Israel. All who ate of it found themselves guilty and disaster came upon them. In other words, God said, whoever messed with my bride, I messed with them. This is the declaration of the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, house of Jacob and all the families of the house of Israel. This is what the Lord says. What fault did your fathers find in me that they went so far from me, followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves? They stopped asking, where is the Lord who brought them up from this land of Egypt, who led us through the wilderness, through a land of desert and ravines, through a land of drought and darkness, and a land no one traveled through and where no one lived? I brought you to a fertile land to eat its fruit and bounty. But after you entered, you defiled my land. You made my inheritance detestable. The priests quit asking, where is the Lord? The experts in the law no longer knew me. And the rulers rebelled against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and followed useless speech. Therefore, I will bring a case against you again. This is the Lord's declaration. I will bring a case against your children's children. Cross over to Cyprus and take a look. Send someone to Kadar and consider carefully. See if there has ever been anything like this. Has a nation ever exchanged its gods? But they were not gods. Yet my people have exchanged my glory for useless idols. Be horrified at this, heavens. Be shocked and utterly appalled. This is the Lord's declaration. For my people have committed a double evil. They have abandoned in me the fountain of living water and dug cisterns for themselves, cracked cisterns that cannot hold water. Go to Jeremiah chapter 32. God is speaking through Jeremiah again. Verse 30, chapter 32. From their youth, the Israelites and Judeans have done nothing but what is evil in my sight. They have done nothing but provoke me to anger by the work of their hands. This is the Lord's Declaration for this city has caused my wrath and fury from the day it was built until now. I will therefore remove it from my presence because all of the evil the Israelites and Judeans have done to provoke me to anger. They, their kings, their officials, their priests, and their prophets, the men of Judah, the residents of Jerusalem, they have turned their backs to me and not their faces. Though I taught them time and time again, they did not listen and receive discipline. They have placed their detestable things in the house that is called by my name and have defiled it. They have built the high places of Baal in the valley of Hinnom to make their sons and daughters pass through the fire of Molech, something I had not commanded them. I had never entertained the thought that they do this detestable act causing Judah to sin. So God is deeply displeased, deeply hurt by his people for rejecting him. 
Israel is unfaithful to God. But verse 36, let's keep reading. Notice God's response. Now, therefore, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says to the city about which you said. It has been handed over to Babylonians, kings, through sword, famine, and plague. He's prophesying they're going to be handed over to Babylonian captivity. But verse 37, I am about to gather them from all the lands where I have banished them in my anger, rage, and great wrath. And I will return them to this place and make them live in safety. What's he saying? After I send them away, because they're unfaithful, I will be faithful and bring them back. Verse 38, they will be my people and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way so that they will be, so that for their good and for the, the, good, and for the good of their des- descendants after them, they will fear me always. I will make an everlasting covenant with them. I will never turn away from doing good to them. And I will put my fear, I'll put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will never again turn away from me. I will take delight in them to do what is good for them. And with all my heart and mind, I will faithfully plant them in this land. For this is what the Lord says, just as, as I have bought, brought all this great disaster on these people, so I am going to bring on them all the good that I am promising them. Israel is unfaithful. God is faithful. Okay, we're going to look at two more prophets. So we're going to look at Ezekiel and then Hosea. Go to Ezekiel chapter 16. What I'm trying to do is I'm trying to prove to you that God has a long withstanding history with Israel before we even get into the New Testament. We have failed to realize when we start reading the New Testament, we're entering it right in the middle of a story. So we're leading up to that point, Ezekiel 16. We're not going to read all of this, just some of this. God speaks a parable to Israel through the prophet Ezekiel. I would encourage you to read all of this. We're not going to read all of it, but it's really descriptive and really difficult to read because it's extremely graphic. Verse 8. So God is saying, you're like a wife to me, Israel. You're my bride. And he speaks of when he found her, and he brought her up and raised her up. So in verse 8, then I passed by you and saw you, and you were indeed at the age for love. So I spread the edge of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I pledged myself to you, entered into a covenant with you, and you became mine. This is the declaration of the Lord God. I washed you with water, rinsed off your blood, anointed you with oil, I clothed you in embroidered cloth and provided you with leather sandals. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. I adorned you with jewelry, putting bracelets on your wrists and a chain around your neck. I put a ring in your nose, earrings on your ears, and a beautiful tiara on your head. So you were adorned with gold and silver, and your clothing was made of fine linen, silk, and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour, honey, oil. You became extremely beautiful and attained royalty. Your fame spread among the nations because of your beauty. For it was perfect through my splendor, which I had bestowed on you. This is the declaration of the Lord. 
but you were confident in your beauty and acted like a prostitute because of your fame. You lavished your sexual favors on everyone who passed by. Your beauty became his or theirs. You took some of your garments and made colorful high places for yourself. A high place is a place of idolatry and worship. And you engaged in prostitution on them. These places should never have been built, and this should never have happened. Look at verse 32. He continues, You adulterous wife who received strangers instead of her husband. Men give gifts to all prostitutes, but you gave gifts to all your lovers. You bribed them to come to you from all around for sexual favors. So you were the opposite of other women in your acts of prostitution. No one solicited you. When you paid a fee instead of one being paid to you, you were the opposite. And God continues to describe their unfaithfulness. But jump down to verse 59. This is what the Lord God says. I will deal with you according to what you have done since you have despised the oath by breaking the covenant. But I will remember the covenant I made with you in the days of your youth. And I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. Once again, Israel has been unfaithful to God but God has been faithful. Hosea. This is the last one we're going to read. And then we'll jump into the New Testament. Hosea, we know his story. God told him, hey, go marry a prostitute. He said, because you're going to be the demonstration, the public demonstration of my relationship with Israel. So Hosea, go marry a prostitute. She'll be unfaithful to you. And he uses Hosea as an example his whole life. But Hosea chapter 4, verse 1 through 13. I hope this is tracking with you guys. Is this making sense? Hear the word of the Lord, people of Israel. For the Lord has a case against the inhabitants of the land. There is no truth, no faithful love, no knowledge of God in this land. Cursing, lying, murder, stealing, adultery are rampant. One act of bloodshed follows another. For this reason, the land mourns, and everyone who lives in it languishes. Along with the wild animals and the birds of the sky, even the fish of the sea disappear. But let no one dispute, let no one argue, for my case is against you, priests. You will stumble by day. The prophet will also stumble by, with you by night, and I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge. I will reject you from serving as my priest since you have forgotten the law of your God. I will also forget your sons. The more they multiply, the more they send against me. I will change their honor into disgrace. They feed on the sin of my people. They have an appetite for their transgressions. The same judgment will happen to both people and priest. I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. They will eat but not be satisfied. 
They will be promiscuous but not multiply, for they have abandoned their devotion to the Lord. Promiscuity, wine and new wine take away one's understanding. My people consult their wooden idols and their divining rods inform them. For a spirit of promiscuity leads them astray. They act promiscuously in disobedience to their God. They sacrifice on the mountaintops and they burn offerings on the hills and under oaks and poplars and terebinths because their shade is pleasant. And so your daughters act promiscuously and your daughter-in-laws commit Adultery. Chapter 11. But here's a dilemma in the heart of God. Verses 8 and 9. God says, but how can I give you up, Ephraim? Right, these are tribes of Israel he's, he's mentioning. How can I surrender you, Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboam? I have had a change of heart. My compassion is stirred. I will not vent the full anger of my wrath. I will not turn back to destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not man, the Holy One among you. I will not come in rage. And then chapter 14, last four verses, verses 1 through 1, 1 through 4. God's about to plead to Israel, Israel, return to Yahweh, your God, for you have stumbled in your sin. Take words of repentance with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, forgive all our sin and accept what is good so that we may repay you with praise from our lips. Assyria will not save us. We will not ride on horses and we will no longer proclaim our gods, lowercase g, to the work of our hands. For the fatherless receives compassion in you. God God says, I will heal their apostasy. I will freely love them. For my anger will have turned from him. So do we see this bipolar relationship that Israel has with God? God is not bipolar. He has been faithful to them. And this is the backdrop to the New Testament. So going into the New Testament, God's heart has been broken again and again and again and again and again. But he has chosen to be faithful to them. Question, what would you do if your spouse cheated on you again and again and again and again and again. If you were God in this moment, would you just not say, all right, we're done. But no. God just didn't say, hey, I'm, I'm coming for you. I still love you. We move into the New Testament and what's he do? He sends his son to Israel, born of Jewish descent, fulfills his promise that he made to Abraham, and he is preparing to bless the nations through a Jewish man 
And somewhere in there, he's going to turn the hearts of a rebellious nation back to him. And he's going to end up using Gentile nations. We're going to get to that in a little bit. Romans 9, 10, 11 to help draw them back to their God. So we look at the ministry of Jesus. I want you to go ahead and turn to Luke 19. We're not going to read it just yet. We get into the New Testament and quick survey of the ministry of Jesus. He's moving in miracles, signs, and wonders. He's primarily ministering to the Jews. He has a little bit of interaction with Gentile people, people who are not of Jewish descent. And then in Matthew 10, he tells his disciples, where does he tell his disciples to go to? I'll read it for you. Jesus says, don't take the road that's leading to other nations and do not enter any Samaritan town. Instead, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And so he tells his disciples, don't worry about all the other nations. Don't even worry about the Samaritans who were supposedly a mixed breed of Jew and Gentile ancestry. So don't worry about them. I want you to go to the full-blooded Jewish people and preach to them, share with them the Savior's here. He has come. His name is Jesus. Turn to the Lord your God. He is finally restoring you and coming to you in tender love and mercy. You've rejected him in times past, but he's here. He's faithful. He is fulfilling an ancient old promise to Abraham, our father. Well, John chapter 1 describes the ministry of Jesus even before it starts. And here's what it says, that Jesus was in, this is verse 10 and 11, that he was in the world and the world was created through him, yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. So not only were you and I unwilling to receive him, but it says his own people did not even receive him. And in Luke 19, Jesus is heading to Jerusalem. His life is nearing the end. In verse 41, as Jesus approached and saw the city, what city are we talking about? Washington, D.C.? Right? Is that what it says in yours? No, Jerusalem. He saw the city. He wept over it. Saying, if you knew this day, what would bring peace? But now it is hidden from your eyes. Okay, wait, who is he talking to? Is this 
Gentile or Jew? The Jewish people. He's going to Jerusalem. For the days will come on you when your enemies will build an embankment against you, surround you, and hem you in on every side. They will crush you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave one stone on another in you, because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Is this not difficult? Like, I questioned myself this week, like, what Jesus have I been following? Like, he, he said this to the Jewish people. Like, he really said this to them. And we're not going to get all into what all that means, but it doesn't, it's not a good thing. This is a, a really bad prophetic word. And it makes me question, God, who are you? This makes me realize that there's something way bigger than my little life is going on. There's a really big story that's happening with God in the nation of Israel. Turn with me to Matthew 23. So, I want to remind you what we just read, Luke 19, and now Matthew 23. These are the final words and indictment that Jesus has towards Israel and the Jewish people. Matthew 23, verse 37. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Who's he talking to there? Good. She who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. Yet you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will never see me again until you say, He who comes in the name of the Lord is the blessed one. That phrase in verse 38, see your house is left to you desolate. Luke says it this way, see your house is left to you abandoned. These are the words of Jesus. This is what he is saying about his business with Israel in the Jewish people. And then in John 19, Jesus has been given over to Pilate. And Pilate's trying to figure out, what do I do with, with Jesus? And here's what the religious Jewish leaders of the day say to Pilate. Crucify him. Crucify him. Take him away. 
And then they go on to say this next phrase, which has to be the ultimate dagger into the heart of God. They say, we have no king but Caesar. But wait, I thought in, in 1 Samuel 8, you wanted a king. So I gave you Saul and, and you know, David, and I kept my promise to you, Israel. And then here's the king, and you don't want him. You want Caesar. Okay. Maybe that's why. Matthew 23, Luke 19, Jesus has a prophecy for Israel. Is this not sobering to you? So we are, as a Gentile nation, we are in a really unique and tender spot. Where what we say and what we do really matters. So, given this storyline that we haven't even got into where we come in the picture. But given this storyline, there are three options. Three things that we can do. We can start believing replacement theology. Right? Replacement theology says that God has replaced Israel with the church. Right? Israel rejected. They don't want Jesus. So now anytime you see a promise made to Israel, you just automatically insert church. Okay. Well, we're going to read Romans 9 here in a moment in 10. Romans 10. And we're going to see that. That's not biblical. You'll, you won't find a verse where God says we just replace Israel, done with them, and now it's the church. Gentile nations just step right in. Replacement theology is born out of ignorance and a lack of patience. Option two, we could be anti-Semitic. Anti-Semitism is the hatred and the demonization of Jewish people, which leads to let's annihilate them on the face of the earth. Well, why is that even a thing? Why would we even do that? Dr. Brown wrote a book called Christian Anti-Semitism. There are Christians who actually believe that. Why do they believe that? Well, because the Jewish people murdered the Messiah. They rejected him. So let's do away with the Jews. It's our time to step in as a Gentile nation. I'm God's favorite. We're God's favorite. Well, anti-Semitism is born out of pride and in some situations, it's inspired by demonic powers. Whenever you hear any anti-Semitic language, 
to me, that is rhetoric of the Antichrist spirit. So if you have hatred in your heart towards Jewish people, you need to repent of that. You may, I don't know, you may need deliverance. But there's no scripture in the Bible where God says, hey, now that you follow me, dear Christian, I want you to go and hate. We're called to even love our enemies. Where do we even get this? How could we... Doesn't make sense. Go with me to Romans chapter 11. Your other homework assignment is to read Romans 9, 10, and 11. Oh, sorry. Go to Romans 9. I want to read this real quick. We have a little bit more time left. So you might ask the question, what's the important significance of Israel and the Jewish people? Romans 9, verses 1 through 5. Paul says, I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience is testifying to me with the Holy Spirit that I have intense sorrow and continual anguish in my heart. For I could almost wish to be cursed and cut off from the Messiah for the benefit of my brothers, my own flesh and blood. Wait, Paul, who are you talking about? Next verse. They are Israelites. And you should underline this phrase, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, and the promises. The ancestors are theirs, and from them came physical descent, the Messiah, who is God over all. So we see why they are important because to them belongs the adoption. God called Israel my son in Exodus chapter 4. There's something unique about that people. It's God choosing them to fulfill his purpose. But go to Romans chapter 11. So going back to how do we interpret, what do we do with what Jesus said with Jerusalem? Well, replacement theology, there's no scriptural backing for that. Anti-Semitism, no. But what if, some may say, what if those things are true? What's the scripture to prove that God has not replaced them, nor God has hated them? Romans 11, verse 1. I ask, then, has God rejected his people? What's his answer? Absolutely not. So that settles it once and for all. Should the Jews be annihilated, annihilated from the face of the earth? Well, no, but they actually won't be. Why? Because God will always have a remnant of Jews in Israel. 
So there can be all this anti-Semitic talk, but guess what? God will protect them because he has not rejected them. We can struggle in the Western church with replacement theology and start believing that, but guess what? God doesn't believe that. Because he still has a purpose and a role for the people of Israel, the Jewish people. So how do we interpret this? What's, what's going on with Israel right now? If we ask the question, what is happening with Israel? What do we do? Romans 11, verse 25. So that you will not be conceited, brothers. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery. A partial hardening has come to Israel until the full number of Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the liberator will come from Zion. He will turn away godlessness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So we are in an age where a partial hardening or a temporary hardening in spiritual blindness rests upon the Jews. And why is that? Because God decided to do that. So if you were to ask me, Brandon, Israel, what's going on? What's happening there? Here's a statement I would like to make. By the Lord's sovereign hand, Israel and the Jewish people are under a temporary hardening and spiritual blindness because of their rejection of Jesus as the Messiah. This can also mean that the things that have happened and that are happening to Israel and the Jewish people, though extremely difficult and devastating and even demonic at times, can be viewed as God's divine discipline on them for their rejection of his son. But we must understand that he disciplines them because he loves them and will return to them to restore them to himself. This is extremely difficult to think about and even honestly to say out loud because there are real lives being lost, real people being affected. But this is the Lord's doing. And for us at moments to respond in pride and arrogance, Paul says in later earlier verses, do not brag that you are better than those branches. Don't be arrogant, but be afraid. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he won't spare you either. So if we look at Israel and the Jewish people and think, oh, they deserve it. <laughs> a 
beloved, we need the fear of the Lord. We need to understand that when God steps in the picture, he's doing things that he doesn't need our permission on. He doesn't need us to agree with him, although we should. He is going to do and fulfill his plan and purpose, whether we like it or not. But my appeal to us today is to understand and try to understand what God is doing in Israel is way bigger than ourselves. I mean, it's incredible. It, you can fit the nation, Israel, you can fit Israel in the state of Florida six times. It's so small. It's tiny. But God has decided by his sovereign hand, he is going to use that nation. And through them came the Messiah. And that Messiah would then, in Acts 15, release the gospel to all the nations. While Israel has been set aside for a period of time, and there are still Jews who turn to the Lord. And he's going to use Gentile nations like you and me to look at Israel and to weep and to pray. And say, return to the Lord your God. Dr. Brown, right, he's a Jew. Here's what he says to Gentile brothers and sisters. He says, and so as a Jewish believer in Jesus, indebted to the Gentile church for showing me the way of salvation... I appeal to my Gentile brothers and sisters in the Lord. Step into your high calling. Make my people envious by your walk with the Lord, by your love for one another, and by your conduct before the watching world. My people need what you have. And that means we need you to be who you are in Jesus, a holy royal priesthood, sons and daughters of the Most High God, ambassadors for the Messiah, let your light shine. So we should not wince and shrink back of what God is doing in the Middle East. We should not be afraid or scared to talk about it. But we should have an understanding so that we can communicate God's storyline even to Jewish people and say, this is that, what's happening over there. The Lord is trying to draw you and woo you to himself. Turn to the Lord Jesus. Paul goes on to say in Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, he says, My brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God concerning them, Israel, is for their salvation. I can testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. This is Paul. He's a Jew. He can say this about them. They have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, because they've disregarded the righteousness from God and attempted to establish their own righteousness. They have not submitted themselves to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. What's he saying? 
They have a passion for God, for Yahweh. They read the Torah, the Old Testament, but they have not turned to Jesus. He is the only way to the Father. He's the way. He's the truth. He's the life. That's our message to a Jewish nation. You must turn to Jesus. He was the sent Messiah over 2,000 years ago. So what should our response be to a message like this? Number one is humility and the fear of the Lord. When I've been studying and, and learning and reading these things, I, I'm, I'm, t- I'm too big in my own head. As an American nation, we're, we're, too, we, we're just too great. We don't understand God could do, and maybe he's doing the same thing to some of our nation. Who knows? But if he's not, will, if he's, if he's not willing to spare them, do you think he would just let us get off the hook? Absolutely not. So we respond to the Lord in, in humility and the fear of the Lord. Number two, we pray for Israel and the Jewish people. Isaiah 62, Romans 10, 1 through 4. We pray for the revealing and the revelation of Jesus Christ as the Messiah. They must see Jesus as the Lord. Because he's the one that says, I leave to you your house desolate. Next time you see me, you're going to be saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, who's the one that comes in the name of the Lord? Jesus. And the third thing we must do is provoke Israel to jealousy. By telling them. Your God has blessed me. Your God has released favor on my life. And it's not about my million dollar mansion and my really cool fast car. No, he, it's my heart. He's blessed the inside. I can serve you in humility. I pray for you. I weep for you. I give to you. There's ministries I give to who serve you as a people. As we close service today, I want my wife just to play a little bit. And if you want to linger in here and just sit with the Lord and maybe ask him, Lord, give me a heart for Israel, the Jewish people. God, do a work in me. I want to give you some time to do that. If you got to head out and all of that, that's totally fine. But I want to ask that we just be mindful of those who are in here. You want to come to the altar, you can come to the altar But my prayer is that the Lord would stir our hearts for understanding and for wisdom and compassion towards what he's doing in the Middle East. Father, we thank you for your name. We thank you for your word. God, I pray for an understanding. I pray that you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts. 
Lord, Romans 11, oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and untraceable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever first given to him and has to be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Father, I pray that you would correct our thinking, you would correct our theology, that you would impart to us a spiritual wisdom and understanding, that you would stir our hearts, that you would move us into action. Lord, would you do this? In Jesus' name. We hope this message has been a blessing to you. If you'd like to join us on a Sunday morning or other weekly gathering, know that you're more than welcome. And if you'd like other resources on or about this ministry, or for any deeper questions you may have, be sure to visit our website at hotfmlakeland.com.